Let's read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Christ or judgment. Christ or judgment. 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we come to your word. We know that it is true, it is righteous, it is the living word of God. It is the word that saves us from our sins. Now, Father, we come to a, a difficult passage, a passage that is hard for many ears and hearts to receive, to understand, but also to receive and to properly respond. Yet we pray that that will not be the case with any of us. We pray that we will all have receptive ears, receptive hearts, the desire to understand its true meaning and to obey it. May we be those who continue and persevere in the faith. May we not be like those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Grant that to each of us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This passage of Scripture is one of two major passages in this letter. Two major passages in this letter that people have misinterpreted over the years. Interpreters have had disagreements on this passage over the years. This passage and the one in chapter 6. Whenever someone wants to understand whether salvation can be lost or not, those proponents who say that salvation can indeed be lost, they come to this passage or the one in chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. But this passage and the one in chapter 6, I believe have a very consistent and clear interpretation and understanding that will cause us not to have the belief that someone can indeed be saved, have genuine faith, have genuine salvation, actually possess it and lose it. There are many people who believe you can indeed possess it genuinely and then lose it. But I will submit to you as we study this passage not only this week, but in upcoming weeks, when we study this passage, that this passage is really not describing those who have true salvation, but those who think they have it, those who have been misled to think that they have it, those who pretend to have it, but really don't have it, because the fruit of their life, the way that their lips are, the way that their life is, that fruit of their life shows otherwise and they persist in sin. They persist in their love of sin. 
So it's a warning. This passage is a warning to make sure that none of us is a pretender. None of us is a false brother. None of us is a kind of, of tear or weed among the wheat because there are some kinds of weeds among the wheat that look like wheat, but they're really not true wheat, true fruit, true production. We have to make sure that we're not that. This is what I will submit to you in the upcoming studies of this passage, that this is not describing somebody who has true salvation and loses it, but it's describing someone who is in the group of Christians, in the flock of Christians, in the visible church, those who say they believe, but they really don't believe. And he's warning them, you better make sure you're not like one of them, but you should repent of your sins and make sure you are in the flock. You're not a goat among the sheep. You're not a weed among the wheat, but you are truly a part of the wheat. You are truly a part of Christ's church his sheep, his people. Not a pretender, but a true professing faith, uh, or Christian who professes true faith. This is what we need to make sure of in the upcoming studies of this passage. All right, so let's look firstly at verse 26. We will go very slowly and methodically through this passage in the upcoming weeks, and today perhaps we will only spend it in verse 26. Only in verse 26. He begins by saying, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He begins this sentence with four. He begins it with four because this four is explanatory. This four, F-O-R, is explanatory. He's trying to illustrate and explain some more what he has just said. So what, what has he just said? In the previous paragraph, he told us that Christ accomplished our redemption because of the blood of Christ in chapter 10, verses 19 to 20. Because of the blood of Christ, we have access to God. And in verse 21, because of who Christ is, he's the great priest, our supreme high priest, because of who he is and because of what he has done, we have access to God. In verses 22 to 25, he exhorted us to draw near to him, verse 22. In 23, to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And in verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's why when he starts this next verse by saying for, F-O-R, he's saying there is a reason why you ought to take what I just said seriously. What I just said, you better take it as significant, as weighty, as very important. Because if you don't take it as very important, drawing near to God, holding fast the faith, and considering in the assembly of believers, in the true church, how to love one another and serve one another and encourage one another, and especially based on the Word of God and the application of the Word of God in one another's life, if we don't take those things seriously, watch out. Be careful. This reminds us 
this little word and its connection to the preceding passage, it reminds us of what we read earlier in Deuteronomy 32, verse 47. After this song of Moses, after he composed it and taught it to the people, he explained to them, it is not an idle word. It's not an idle word. An idle word It's not an empty word. I'm not saying this in vain. I'm not just trying to make you feel nice and good. It's not a word that you can just fling as though it's a fly on your shoulder. Don't think of it as an idle word, as a light word, as something that's insignificant or unimportant. Don't think of it that way. He says, indeed, it is your life. Indeed, it is your life. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. What we study here in the Bible is a matter of life and death. It's not a matter of personal preference. It's not a matter of you liking to go to a buffet and eating one kind of food as opposed to another kind of food, but your partner, your friend, your family member who's behind you in the buffet prefers another kind of vegetable dish or another kind of meat dish to the one that you prefer. This is not talking about flavors of ice cream. It's not talking about buffets and and food and drink. It's not talking about that. That's not what we study when we come to the Bible. We're talking about eternal life and eternal death. We're talking about whether we go to heaven or we go to hell. Someone asked Jesus, one of his disciples, in Luke 13, 23, Lord, are there just a few being saved? And Jesus said, strive to enter by the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but will not enter. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. That gate is narrow. It's not a wide gate. It is a narrow gate. And few people consider that the things of God are actually a narrow gate. They think it's a wide gate, a large gate, a tall gate, but when actually it's narrow, it's small, it's short, and few are those who get there And who gets there but the one who strives? He didn't say, sits down and just waits for things to happen. He says, they strive. It's work. It's hard work. It's agonizing. We have to strive to enter that. And this is what he's trying to impress upon us with this passage. He says, for if we don't look at it this way, what I just said, don't take it as light. Because he says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, if, for if, if is a simple word. But what is its significance in this passage? When he says if, he's introducing a condition. If the condition is met, then the result will follow. If the premise is met, then the conclusion will follow. If the condition is met with the if clause, then the then clause will be true. Many times in English, we don't say then, we suppress the then because it's understood or it's implied. Here, he says in verse 26, if we were to place it here, 
For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He says, if the first part is true, then the second part is also true. So if the first part is, we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You have no way for your sins to be covered. You have no way for your sins to be atoned. You have no way to be forgiven of your sins. This is important. This is why he's taking it so seriously. This is why he's saying it's either we receive the knowledge of the truth in the proper way or we don't. 26. If we go on sinning willfully. Now he says we. Why does he include himself? Is he including himself as some interpreters say, because he is merely theoretical. He is merely theoretical or hypothetical. They say, he has this strong warning here and elsewhere in this letter only because theoretically it is what he's describing, but actually and practically, really, it will never happen. Is he saying we because he's saying that it will never happen that we, none of us, would ever go on sinning willfully. And because we would never go on sinning willfully, there is really no punishment that awaits us. Absolutely not. The Bible is not written in hypothetical terms. The Bible is not written in theoretical, hypothetical, potential terms. The Bible isn't written for that purpose. The Bible is written to be very practical, to be very relevant, to be describing reality, the way that things actually are. That's why when we see, if we go on sinning willfully, we have to consider, what does he mean, if we go on sinning willfully? Who is the we? This is where the controversy is. Who is the we? Is the we here, those who actually have true salvation and lose it, whether they lose it the next moment, the next day, or the next week, or 10 years down the road, is it somebody who possesses true salvation, true faith and salvation, and then loses it, or is he describing another group? Firstly, let's rule out the fact, or the, the possibility, that he's describing somebody who has true salvation and loses it. Let's rule out that part. How can we do so? Our first example is chapter 3, Hebrews 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14. After also giving a warning, or right in the middle of a warning here in chapter 3, he says this in verse 14, 314. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. He asserts here, he's putting, in this case, he puts the conclusion before the premise. He says, we have, for we have become partakers of Christ, if the following condition is met. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Which means, 
If we do not hold fast from the beginning until the end, then he's saying we have not become a partaker of Christ. Those who do not persevere until the end are those people who never possessed Christ, never belonged to Christ at the start. They pretended, they had initial enthusiasm, they had something initially that interested them, but they did not continue in the faith. That's what he's saying in 3.14. We have become partakers of Christ. So this past tense reality is true of us if we hold fast from the beginning until the end. If we do not hold fast until the end, then what we claim to have happened at the beginning, we have become partakers of Christ, is not true. In the letter, in, within this letter, this is one of several examples within the letter where he asserts that this kind of reality, this kind of truth. He, in other words, he's just saying in this letter, if you truly believe it in the first place, you will persevere until the end. But if you did not truly believe it in the first place, you will not persevere until the end. It will not continue in your life. Instead, sin will be in your life and be more and more manifested in your life. Let's go, go to another example of whether we persevere or not in true conversion. Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. 7:21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is an amazing passage because he says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough to say Jesus is my Lord and not mean it. If you don't mean it, that's what he's talking about. You can't just say the words and pretend that magically or superstitiously, just because I said the words that I belong to Christ. I am a true believer. We can't do that because he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Because we have to really mean it. That's his point. Because if we really mean it, we will do the will of my Father who is in heaven. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well then, these who are excluded say to him, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Yes, there will be people, many people, on the day of judgment who say to the Lord, 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 we did these many things and we did it in your name. We did these many wonderful things in your name, miraculous things in your name, prophesied, cast out demons, and many miracles. But that's not enough. Because he says in 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, who could he be describing? 
Well, I submit to you several examples. He could be describing Cain. Cain, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. Was he not taught the word of God by his parents? Abel knew the word of God, and Abel did what was good and right. Abel had faith and brought a proper offering, but Cain lacked faith and did not bring a proper offering. He had access, and yet, and he prayed to God. He said, when God spoke to him, my punishment is too great to bear. Remember he said that? So he's talking to God, and when he's talking to God, he must call him Lord. Cain did that, but yet Cain was an unbeliever from beginning to end. And how about Balaam? In the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 22 to 24, there is a false prophet or diviner, somebody like a, a, a witch doctor, a medium, a spiritist. His name was Balaam. He worshipped idols, and he was hired by the enemies of Israel to come and curse Israel so the enemies could conquer them and destroy them before they entered the land of Canaan. And yet, the Spirit of God overcame Balaam, and Balaam could not pronounce a curse. He was forced. He was forced, as it says in uh, Joshua 24.10, he had to bless you. He had to bless you. The Spirit of God overcame Balaam. He announced true words when the Spirit of God controlled him, and he had to pronounce a blessing on the nation of Israel. He could not pronounce a curse. He's another one. He's another one who has the spirit in that sense, in the revelatory sense, but not in the true sense, not in the sense of that his soul was saved from sin, that he was a true believer, not in that way. And finally, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 disciples of Christ, one of the 12 apostles of Christ. He walked with Christ everywhere for three and a half years, right? And all the disciples, they thought he was a true believer. They didn't know. Remember in the upper room, in John chapter 13, he says, one of you will betray me. And they're all wondering, who is this going to be? Who is it going to be? Not I, not I. Everyone's saying, not I. How could I do that? I would never do that. But it was Judas Iscariot. He was among the people, but he was not really of those people. He was not a true disciple. And if we see Matthew 10, Matthew 10 Verses 1 to 4, we'll see Judas was one who could easily say on the day of judgment, I prophesied, I cast out demons, and I performed many miracles. Look at this, Matthew 10, verse 1. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And Judas Iscariot, the, the one who betrayed him. These twelve apostles, they were commissioned to do what? To proclaim the gospel. And it says in verse 1, authority over unclean spirits and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And we know they proclaim the gospel because in the following passage, they are pro proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come. In the following passage. So this is an, another example of Judas Iscariot 
who did not believe he never was a believer. He did not have true salvation and lose it. Now let's prove that point. Did Judas Iscariot ever possess true salvation and then lose it? Or was he an unbeliever among true believers, pretending to be a true believer? Let's see. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Judas Iscariot. 666. John 666. Jesus had said very uh, severe words, words of true commitment, and many people didn't like it. So John 666, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The crowds of people, they walked away from Jesus, but he still had his 12 there. The crowds, they were more superficial than Judas. They walked away more easily than Judas. Judas stayed longer. But Jesus says, even among his 12, remaining 12, verse 70, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? I chose you 12 to be my disciples or or apostles, and I have gifted you with the ability to preach, gifted you with the ability to perform many miracles, cast out demons. This I've given you, but I know one of you is a devil. One of you is, and he meant Judas. Judas Iscariot. He was a devil. And let's confirm that. Chapter 13. John chapter 13. 13. John chapter 13. Remember here, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. Simon Peter objects to it because he doesn't really understand what's going on, but then he concedes to Jesus washing his feet. And notice also verse 10. John 13, verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. But you are clean, but not all of you. What does he mean? He means that when we are saved from our sins and we receive salvation, we are completely clean, but then our feet get dirty. That is, the remaining time we live in this world until we die, our feet get dirty. That is, we commit sins day by day that need to be regularly washed and cleansed. That's what he means. But why did he say, you are clean, but not all of you? Verse 11. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 18 now. Verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel 
against me. In chapter 17, John 17, John 17. In this prayer that Christ offers to the Father, he explains how the Father has given people to Christ. The Father has given, handed over people to Christ, but not a certain one. Verse 12, verse 12, 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That the scripture might be fulfilled, what does that mean? That means that even before Judas Iscariot was born, it was ordained, God had ordained it, that Judas would be among them, but not really one of them. He would be a pretender. He would look like he was a disciple, but not be a true disciple. He would look like some wheat, but he was actually weeds among the wheat. That that's the way it would be. Because if the scripture had to be fulfilled, which is Psalm 69 or Psalm 109, passages like that where Jesus is predicted as being betrayed by one of his own, right here, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So hundreds of years, literally a thousand years when David wrote those Psalms, a thousand years before Judas was actually born, God had already determined what was going to happen to him. And he would be a son of perdition or destruction. He would not be saved. This means Judas was never saved. Then how can we know what Judas' sin was that he refused to repent of? What was the sin of Judas that he was unwilling to let go? We find that in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 6. What was the sin that he went on sinning that he would not give up? John 12, 6. Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Here we have some oil, costly oil, used on Jesus to anoint Jesus by Mary. And there's a complaint that arises. Why did you use this costly oil on Jesus? Why did, why did you do that? We could have sold this. You know, they give it a religious cloak. It sounds good. Oh yeah, we could have sold this and we could have given all that money to the poor. Why did we just pour it on Jesus' feet here? Why did we just do that? Now, that covering, that smoke screen is explained in verse 6. John the Apostle says, Now he, Judas Iscariot, said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. He, had, he was the, the treasurer among the disciples. He kept the accounts among the disciples. He had a money box that they carried from place to place. And secretly, he would steal money. And he did that regularly. He never wanted to repent of it. And we know eventually it came to the surface. How did it come to the surface? When it was time for Jesus to be crucified, arrested and then crucified, what did he do? He went in secret to the chief priests and he went in secret to them and he asked them, how much money will you give me 
if I point him out to you and show you where he is? And they said, 30 pieces of silver. They bargained for 30 pieces of silver. So he was a lover of money. He was a thief and a lover of money. And this is what brought his demise. Therefore, now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. If he's not describing people who have genuine salvation and lose it, as we've just seen in these three examples of Cain, of Balaam, of Judas Iscariot, and we could consult many more. And then if he is describing those who will eventually manifest themselves because they love money, they love money or they love whatever their sin is, any other sin, because they love it, they will eventually manifest themselves. This is who he is describing. When he says, if we go on sinning willfully, he's saying we in the sense that I know that we all are brothers in that we all are claiming to be brothers in Christ, but let's all make sure we are brothers in Christ and let's not go on sinning willfully. Willfully. Judas knew, but he went on sinning willfully. Eventually, he manifested himself. And often, this is what happens. 1 John 2.19 also says, 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. You see, he clearly says, this is often how it manifests itself. Eventually, it rises to the top, like in the case of Judas Iscariot. It rose to the top, and he showed his true colors in due time. And John says in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. They went on sinning, which is the next phrase. Notice in verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully, go on sinning. He's not talking about daily sins. He's not talking about daily sins in the sense that I know I sinned by saying this or doing that. He's not talking about those kinds of sins because we know they are wrong. We confess them. We, we seek to overcome them. We seek to rectify our relationships. We seek to confess them before God. We seek to make sure that we not sin that way again. Yeah, whatever our sin might be, we take that object out of the room. We don't leave, uh, let it come into the house, whatever it might be. We don't go to that place, that establishment over there anymore. We don't go to that district over there on that street. We don't go and do those things anymore. He, we understand that. That's what he, he's not describing that kind of thing. What he's saying here, if we go on sinning willfully, he's describing sins that we don't give up. For example, we know that we should assemble together, as he says in verse 25. But there are some people who think that one can be a Christian, one can be a Christian and not go to church. You can be a Christian and not go to church. I can be a Lone Ranger. 
I can attend whenever I feel like it, maybe once or twice a year or every couple of years, but I don't need to attend church. They have the habit of not assembling together. They're casual. Well, he just said that in verse 25. And now if you know this to be true and you go on sinning willfully, then are you a true Christian? Are you a true Christian? Or let's say that you don't know that a certain sexual sin is sin, right? If there is no, uh, the only way in the Bible for there to be a proper sexual relationship is in marriage between husband and wife, right? Now, if that's the only way, then any other kind of sin, sexual sin, is sin. Any other kind of action in, in sex is sin. And if that is the case, and you're told that, you know that, but you say, oh no, I, 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 I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible is true. I don't believe that. I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that part is true. That part you're misinterpreting. You're being too extreme with that. You're an extremist. I'm not. I, I'm more free thinking. Yeah, I believe the Bible. I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to believe what you're saying there. You're, you're, they have received the knowledge of the truth, and yet they're making excuses for their sin. They're going on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Or let's say that we say Jesus is the only way to God. And someone might say, yes, I believe Jesus is good. He's the Son of God. The Bible describes Him. There is God. Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that. But then, if somebody says, that same one says, but you can be a good Muslim and go to heaven. You can be a good Buddhist or Hindu and go to heaven. You can even be an atheist because everyone's going to get to heaven. Even atheists, whether they want to get to heaven or not, God, because Jesus died on the cross for every person, every person is going to go to heaven. Some people believe that, that way. And even people saying they are Christians, they will openly teach that. So what are they doing? They are sinning willfully, sinning willfully even after receiving the knowledge of the truth. They know the Bible doesn't teach that. They know the Bible says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. They know that John, uh, Acts 4, 12 says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. They know that 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. They know the Bible says that, and yet blatantly, deliberately, they go on sinning willfully against that truth. They're not saved if they do that. You can't be saved if you know what the Bible actually says and you brazenly contradict it, you brazenly undermine it. You can't be that way. We just gave three examples. We gave a practical example in verse 25 of not coming to church, making excuses for church. A second one we gave was a sexual or moral example. And the third one was an ideological or theological example saying whether Jesus is the only way or not. In any case, whatever the Bible addresses, if we are going to be blatantly and brazenly contradicting it, we are sinning, we're going on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. This is what he means here. So, he's not talking about how we need to get control over certain aspects of our life. We know we are sinning against God. We know we need His power and His grace to overcome those sins. He's not saying that when we do sin, and we know it is sin, we're grieved over our sin, and we ask Him for forgiveness, we ask Him for power, that we 
stumble in that same sin more and uh, again and again. We might stumble in that sin again and again, but we are seeking to overcome it. The difference is whether we are seeking and striving and laboring, toiling hard to overcome the sin or not. In this case, they don't care to overcome it. They go on sinning willfully. Willfully. That is where the problem is. Let's not be that way. Further, he says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. Well, what is this knowledge of the truth? I submit that the knowledge of the truth is the gospel. It is the gospel. That is, what we need to believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ and the implications that follow from that. What we have to believe and the implications of that. This is this body of knowledge of the truth. Let's look at an example of this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy 1, verse 8. 1 Timothy 1, 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In this passage, he explains that all of these sins mentioned are contrary to sound teaching. And what is sound teaching? What is wholesome, healthy, sound teaching? According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What the Apostle Paul's preaching, what he's conveying to Timothy, and what Timothy is supposed to t- teach others, is this gospel of the blessed God. So when we hear this gospel, and precisely or concisely defined, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If we truly believe that Jesus died as our substitute for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead, if we truly believe this for our sins, then what are the sins that we begin to give up? What are the sins that we begin to reject? Well, he just mentioned some of those sins in verses 9 and 10. Because Practicing those sins are not in harmony with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. They're not in harmony. They are contradictory. So if we practice any of these sins, we're not adhering to this glorious gospel. We are undermining it. We are subverting it, the glorious gospel. This is the knowledge of the truth, this body of truth. This is what Christ has done for our sins, therefore, now I must turn away from my sins. From that moment of conversion onwards. That is the change that occurs and should occur. That is the knowledge of the truth. 
notice when he says knowledge of the truth, he uses this phrase or this word after receiving. After receiving. Now, here is a point of interpretation and conflict in interpretation. Is this receiving the knowledge of the truth a true reception of it so that the person was saved? Or is it a false reception of it that shows that the person was not saved, but really he was a pretender? He was a false convert. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. What does he mean by after receiving? Did the person truly believe it or did he superficially believe it? Was he substantially a believer or superficially a believer? What is the case? After receiving the knowledge of the truth. According to what we've said before in the earlier part of the verse, after receiving the knowledge of the truth has to do with a false convert, a false brother. Let me show you another example of this. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. 2 Peter 2.20. He has described false brothers in this chapter. He has described them because he says in verse 1 that they promote destructive heresies secretly, secretly introduce destructive heresies, and even deny the master who bought them. So he describes their behavior, and then he summarizes what he has just said. 2 Peter 2. 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. He describes these people as having escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge Knowledge of Christ, knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They escaped it. Let, let, let us illustrate, say, for example, a drunkard. Let's say there is a drunkard. He is habitually a drunkard. He hears the gospel, and when he hears the gospel, he has an immediate change. And let's say that that change lasts maybe a week or one month. But then... For that week or one month, he goes to church. He cleans himself up. He's sober. He can talk rationally. You can have a, hold a conversation with him. Even late at night, you can hold a conversation with him. It's fine and good for a week or let's say a month or even longer than that. He's just fine. But then, after he's cleaned himself up and everybody says, oh, wonderful, uh, Joe has now become a Christian and he's coming to church. But what if Joe resorts back? What if he falls away? What if he falls back to his old sin? It says there, 
they are again entangled in them and are overcome. Joe, who has come to church for a month now with his suit, and, and he's tidied up, right? He's neat and proper and prim. He's come for one month, and he's been sober that whole month. Now he goes back to the bars. Now he goes and squanders his money on liquor, and he's getting drunk, and he does this persistently, and he's overcome by it. Was that man, was Joe, for that one month, was he a true believer or not? He received the knowledge of the truth. Did he receive it truly? Did he receive it substantially? Did he receive it genuinely? Was it true conversion? And then did he lose it after a month or not? I say, no, he did not have it truly, and Peter's describing that. He says, when they are again entangled in them, verse 20, and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Their result, their last state, after the one month, when they indulge in drunkenness and continue in that for the rest of their life, the last state has become worse than the first, he says in 21. For it would, have, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It's better for you not to be, have pretended for that one month and say, I received the knowledge of the truth. I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior now. It's better not to do that. Because if you do it, and then you turn away from it, there's greater judgment on you. It's more severe. He says in 22, he describes them, these people, in these two ways. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. Not a false one, but a true one. This is the way it truly happens. A dog returns to its own vomit. Listen, when the drunkard was getting drunk before his apparent conversion, he was getting drunk and he behaved like a wild dog, a stray dog, right? But then somebody found this stray dog, cleaned it up, gave it a house for a month, and that dog, no longer stray, now domesticated, it's under control somewhat for a month. That dog that got cleaned up, or in this case, as he's saying, this dog that has a stomach upset, eventually the stomach upset causes the dog to vomit, right? And so he has temporary relief. He has temporary relief from his internal affliction. But what does the dog do? Even though it had an upset stomach because of whatever it ate, it relieved itself by vomiting. What does it do later after the vomit is still there? It will go back, return, and go eat it. Isn't that what they do? Or after a month of being cleaned up, if the dog has an opportunity to go back and be a stray dog, will it not do that? It will do that. Now, has the dog changed its nature? Did the dog change its nature? He doesn't say here, the dog became a sheep and then it went back to dog. Dog, sheep, dog. No. Dog, temporary relief, back to behaving just like a dog. And in the second example, same thing. A sow, a female pig. A sow, after washing, right? Pigs, if you let them loose, they want filth. They want mire. They want pollution. They want 
the dirty and the nasty foods and things that are out there, right? Wherever they can find that kind of food. They live that way. They live in filth. This is the way pigs are. But if you took a pig like that and you washed up the pig and then you let it go, temporarily the pig was clean. Temporarily the pig was not in the filth. But then the pig, according to its own nature, when you let it loose, it goes back to what it wants to do. Its nature has not changed. The pig's nature never became a sheep and then back to pig. The nature was not changed. This is why he's saying in Hebrews chapter 10, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It is possible to come to this knowledge of the truth, to receive it in some kind of way and to benefit from it temporarily, but not to have true conversion of your heart, of your mind, of your soul, you don't truly belong to Christ, though you might pretend to, you might think you do, and others might think you do, but you really don't. This is what he means, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. It was not a true reception, but a false one. Now, if this is the case, then what's the result? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That is, if we don't believe in Christ, who is our sacrifice, then why would we think that if Christ is insufficient for us, that we could trust in an animal? As he's been arguing in the last few chapters, he says, no animal can save you from sin. Chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for them to take away sins. No animal can take away sins, and thereby it would be a good deed of the worshiper. So, there's no good deed of the worshiper, no good works, nothing that we present, not our will and not our works. Not our will, our good will, our free will. There's no will involved in saving us from sin. And there's no works that can save us from sin. Romans 9, 16, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. There is no sacrifice. The only place where we can be saved is the death of Christ the sacrifice of Christ, His atonement for our sins. If we belong to Him by true faith in Him, then we are saved. He is the only sacrifice for sins. No one else and nothing else. Not ourselves, not our goodness, nothing that we have to present to God. It's not as though we strike a deal as two businessmen sit at the table and they strike a deal in shaking their hands. One partner of the business does what he needs to do, the other one does what he needs to do, and they meet in the middle. This is not the way salvation works. It's not a business deal. God has to change us. God has to transform us, and only by the sacrifice of Christ. His sacrifice, his blood, is applied to us. What he did for us is given to us. This is the only way. Only Christ. Salvation only in him. Not ourselves, but from him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.